if you had asked me how close Danny and I were a week before he was killed, I, I would have said, well, we're partners, but he's not my best friend. But when he was killed, it cut me so deeply, it hurt me so deeply that in truth, he was my best friend. You know, I, it's hard to explain that, but when you're, when you have a partner, it, it goes deeper than you think it does. That's all I can tell you. Yeah. Even if you don't think you're friends, you are. I, I guarantee you, you're trusting each other. You're counting on each other. Hey there, my name is Jared Altick, and I'm a chaplain with the police department. The Hey Chaplain podcast is the place where members of the law enforcement community can share their wisdom and experience through me, the chaplain, so that they can encourage others who wear the badge. On Hey Chaplain, you'll hear from federal agents and detectives, sheriffs and U.S. Marshals, and an occasional medical investigator thrown in for good measure. From the LAPD to Scotland Yard, the guests on Hey Chaplain deliver advice and insights so that police officers everywhere can survive and thrive. In part one of my interview with Ward Jenkins, we talked about his experiences in the 1992 LA riots. But today, we go back earlier in his career to when he experienced the devastating loss of his partner being killed in the line of duty. We talk about the closeness of law enforcement partners, the abuse of alcohol, and Ward's physical and spiritual recovery from this. We also talk about what leads to a retired LAPD cop moving to the Midwest to begin helping other cops. Listen closely. Ward is a veteran officer, and he has a lot of wisdom that I want you to hear. Now, obviously, the murder of a fellow cop is a very sensitive subject, so be assured that we don't dwell on it for too long. But nevertheless, listener discretion is advised. Here's Ward Jenkins. You had another very traumatic event that affected you uh, as a police officer, you know, as a human being. Can you tell me about about that incident? I was, uh, I had about six years on the job. I was working 77th Street Division, which um, is in South Central LA. It's very, very active at this time. This would have been about 1988. I when I got to 77th Division as a young officer, I connected with uh, an academy classmate of mine. His name was Danny. He was, he's a great guy, family family guy, married and kids. And I, I was single. He was a few years older than me. He'd been a Marine. And we started working together, and we became partners. And we worked, uh, we worked together for about four and a half years. We worked patrol, vice, narcotics, gangs. Huh. Everything that we could do, we did together, and we were we were pretty inseparable. You know, uh, we both made training officer at the same time, and um, we uh, we heard that. So we we had a problem in seventy seventh division with Hispanic women being the victims of street robberies. Okay, and they were afraid to report it because they were there illegally. Hmm. Okay, but we you know the department recognized that they were being victimized. And so they said, let's do something about this. We, it's hard to gain their cooperation because they're afraid, but what can we do? Well, we could form an undercover unit and we could put undercover female officers out on the street and they could get robbed. Right. And then we could swoop in and arrest everybody. So that's, so let's do that. So when Danny and I heard that there was this undercover opportunity and in 77th we we thought well that that sounds like fun let's go do that so we both applied for it and uh uh he got accepted and i didn't okay 
So for the first time in you know four and a half years, our partnership was going to be broken up, and he he went into this detail, and I stayed. I was in gangs at the time, we, but we were we were in gangs when we applied. And I went to the sergeant, and I said, Sergeant, why why didn't you take me in? You know, and yeah. he said, Look, Ward, I'm only allowed one uh, training officer, and Danny is a training officer, and you're a training officer, and I, I've taken Danny. And he said, The other thing is, you guys are both uh, male Caucasians, and I need minority officers because this is an undercover unit. Yeah, Danny's there for leadership. He says, But be patient, Ward. I'll get you in the unit. So I said, Okay, yeah. So I stayed in gangs, and, and uh, it was Labor Day weekend in 1988, September 3rd, Friday night. And uh, Danny and his partner, they, they weren't even doing uh, an undercover robbery detail. They were actually just on a stakeout of a liquor store. It was kind of a, it was Labor Day weekend, and they all wanted to go home. You know, they all wanted to have the weekend off. And so right. their sergeant said, let's just, you know, there's a liquor store it keeps getting broken into. Let's stake out on that, see if we can catch the burglars. So Danny and his partner were uh, sitting there, and they heard gunfire. A, a car sped past and kind of made the corner. The headlights washed into their car, and the car sped past them behind them. So they thought, that I bet you a shooting just went down, a drive-by shooting. Let's give chase. So Danny and his partner gave chase, and uh, ultimately the, the suspects doubled back on them, and, the, and the, there was a female driving the suspect car, a 17-year-old female and a 30-year-old male in the passenger seat, and he leaned out the passenger window with a AR-15 and opened fire. Hmm. And he hit the car that they were sitting in 17 times. Oh, wow. And Danny was killed. Wow. And I heard, uh, I heard the help call come out. I was, I was actually getting dinner. Uh, and so I abandoned my dinner and raced back toward the station looking for the, or toward my division looking for the suspects because I knew which direction they had left in and what color car they were in. And I didn't find the suspects. And I didn't know that Danny had been killed at first. I just knew that an officer was down. And right. so... Through a sequence of events, I, I met up with some officers, and I, uh, I well, I called the station because I detained some possible suspects, but they weren't the right ones. And so I said, who, who, was, who was hurt? And the, they said, well, we, we, heard, we heard it was Danny. And so I said, well, it was Danny. Well, how is he? They, we don't know. We don't know what his condition is. So I left. I hung up the phone, and we left, and I found some other officers that were uh, detaining some gang members, and I got out of the car, and I... And I I walked up to one of the guys and I, and we started talking and, and, and he said, did you hear the news? And I said, well, yeah. He goes, you know, the officer died, but I don't know who it was. And I said, oh, oh no, it was Danny. So I just went to the station because I was pretty much done at that point. Yeah. And, uh, and when I got to the station, I, it, it was confirmed it was Danny because the rest of his, this robbery detail was there and they were just in pieces. Yeah. So I got, uh. I was asked by my captain who rolled in from home to go out with the chaplain that night to tell Danny's wife that he had been killed. Wow. She had three kids and she was pregnant with her fourth. Mm. Uh, she and Danny were high school sweethearts. They'd uh, met in Ohio and um, in high school and gotten married you know, shortly after high school. And so here they were in Southern California. So that was a horrible night for me. Um, if you had asked me how close Danny and I were a week before he was killed, I, I would have said, well, we're partners, but he's not my best friend. But when he was killed, it cut me so deeply. It hurt me so deeply that in truth, he was my best friend. You know, I, it's hard to explain that, but when you're, when you have a partner, it, it goes deeper than you think it does. That's all I can tell you. Yeah. Even if you don't think you're friends, you are, I, I guarantee you, you're trusting each other. You're counting on each other. So. Yeah. Well, that bond right yeah. there. 
Yeah, to have shared danger that, that creates a bond. Yeah, and so I was living alone in a little condo, and um, I I was pretty numb. I couldn't get to sleep, and so um, one of the tools that my dad gave me, unfortunately, was that uh, you drink. Hmm. And uh, by textbook definition, he would have been considered an alcoholic. He was never a sloppy drunk. He was never unproductive. He just drank at a certain time at night. He started to have his martinis, and you know he he drank and then went to bed. Well, that was what I did because I couldn't get to sleep, and my drink of choice was was dark rum. So I had a sixteen ounce tumbler. I'd put ice in it, and I'd fill it up to within about an inch and a half of the top with rum. I'd splash some diet coke on the top, just enough diet coke that I could chug the rum without gagging. Right, and I would drink the rum as fast as I could, and uh, wait. A minute or two, three, and then I would start feeling loopy, and I'd crawl upstairs and hit the bed and pass out and wake up the next day, shower, shave, go to work, come right. home, and at some point I'd have to go, well, i got to get to sleep. Yeah. And at some point in this process, and I, I, I have to believe I probably had already had my rum for that night, I ended up on my, on my couch in my, in my condo all alone, and I picked up my service pistol, and I put it in my mouth. And I put my finger on the trigger. And I thought about squeezing it because it was just, uh, I felt so hopeless and I felt so much despair that I just didn't really understand why I would keep living. And when I say that now, it doesn't make sense. I wasn't going to solve anything. It doesn't make sense to me why, how I got there. All I can tell you is that's where I was. It was a dark place in my life. And I thought about, Actually, what I thought about was what it was going to do to my mom and my dad and my brothers and the trauma it was going to cause them. And so I decided not to do that. And I went upstairs and went to sleep. And Well, a couple nights later, I was in my kitchen and I was, I was doing the, the rinse and repeat thing. I had the bottle of rum in my hand and I had the cup of ice and I was standing there. And all of a sudden, I heard a voice in my head clear as day. And I'm going to tell you that sharing this is a big deal for me because this is very, when you say that you heard from God, people are going to go, I think you're crazy. But this is what happened. I heard a voice and it asked me, Ward, what are you doing? Huh. And I thought for a second and I knew who it was and I, and I knew that I needed to be honest because he already knew. Yeah. He wasn't really asking me because he didn't know. And I said, well, uh, I'm getting drunk. And he said, how are you going to feel tomorrow? And I actually had to pause and think through that. How am I going to feel tomorrow? Let me, okay, let me think about that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pour the rum. I'm going to slam it. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to pass out. I'm going to, well, tomorrow when I wake up, I'm going to feel exactly like I do right now. I'm going to feel like crap. Yeah. And he said, look into that bottle ward and tell me what answers do you see inside? And I literally looked into the bottle and kind of swirled it, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. And the one good thing I'll tell you is that there were no words floating around inside right. the rum. <laughs> that's, the, that's my proof of sanity right there. There were no words there. And I said, there, there are no answers in here. And then he said, he said, are you a believer? Do you believe in me? Well, I'm having an actual discussion with God at this point. And so I'm like, yeah, I believe in you. Of course I believe in you. And then his final question was, have you bothered talking with me about this? Huh. And I said, no. So, 
And you were you were raised religious. I was raised religious. I went to okay. church. Um, I accepted. I, ha- I had a, a salvation experience in high school. But now you're several years into your law enforcement career. What happened to church? Oh, I just gave. I was partying. Um, <laughs> God still existed, but uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't a, a force in my everyday life. If you were questioned, you would have said you were a Christian. Yeah, I think I would have identified as a Christian. Okay, yeah, but you weren't practicing your faith and hadn't for a while. No, I wasn't okay. praying. I wasn't reading the Bible. I wasn't attending church anywhere. I wasn't doing anything that would show that I had faith. Really, right, right. Okay, uh, I, and so, but now you're hearing God. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and. And it's funny because um, I've shared this story with a few people over the years, and I, I've had a common response from strong believers, and they always say something like, I wish God would talk to me. Like, like you're so lucky that God talked to you that way. And the only thing I can tell you is that 1 Corinthians says is that God chooses the foolish. Hmm. And that's who I am. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you that I deserve to be talked to, but he, but he, that's how he reached me. Yeah, I would say pastorally, I've heard a lot of people, because I... I don't walk around every day hearing an audible voice from God. Right. Um, but I have had many people tell me these stories where they felt that God intervened and spoke to them in some way to some degree. And to a person, it was all in the worst possible moments of their lives. And so the it is a foolish thing to ask, you know, boy, I wish God would speak to me. Because right. frankly, you probably have to be near a breaking point before right. you might hear that. You've got and to, so, that's yeah. where I was. Yeah. I was at a place where I had given up. And so um, the only two words I said out loud that night were, now what? Hmm. I felt like the only tool that I had been using had just been shown to be fruitless. And I needed, God wanted to talk to me. And I looked over and on my little coffee table in my little condominium in downtown Long Beach was, uh, was a Bible that I hadn't cracked open in years. And hmm. so I knew if, if he wanted to talk with me and, and that's where it was going to happen. So I walked over and I sat down, I picked up my Bible. Now I'd been trained when I was in college. I, I was involved with a group called the navigators. Sure. Sure. Great group. And they, they were really big on uh, scripture memorization. And one of the things that uh, one of the guys had taught me when I was a, a young believer was you never just randomly open up your Bible and start to read. And here's the example they gave me. And I've never forgotten this. You open your Bible randomly and you read Judas went and hanged himself. Right. Yes. And then you close your Bible and you open it up randomly and you read. Go now do likewise. Yes. yes. That's exactly it. <laughs> yes. Therefore, yeah. now I'm going to do likewise. <laughs> so I was smart enough to not just be random. And so right. I thought, what right. am I going to? Where am I going to turn to? Well, a verse popped into my head because the navigators were big on scripture memory, and I remembered this verse in Romans, Romans eight twenty eight. And so I turned to it and I read it. And I won't get it perfect here, but. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the gist of it. All things work together for good. And as soon as I read the verse, I knew that I had just had a discussion with God. I said, okay, God, you mean to tell me that somehow you're going you're gonna to use the murder of my best friend killed by some, oh my gosh, I don't even want to say it. And you're going to use that for good. And um, that's where he said, you know, yeah, I will. Trust me. Yeah. So uh, so I cleaned up my act. I didn't drink anymore. Uh, I had poured the rum out as soon as, as, soon as he had confronted right. me in the kitchen. I, I dumped it. Um, and so... And what changes did come from that? 
Because I'm sure nothing changed the next day. No, nothing changed. And so, uh, except that uh, I no longer drank, I started reading the Bible. I decided I would read Psalms. That seemed like a logical place to go. And I just started every day reading the Bible, and I started praying again. And I and I was still going to work and being productive and coming home. And I, I just sort of like, if God told me to trust him, I needed to trust him. That's what I knew. I didn't know how it was going to work, but that's what he told me. And he told me it was going to work out. And so I, I was like, okay. Did the insomnia go away? Yeah, actually it did. Okay. I, I never really thought about that, but not, I mean, I, I don't, cops never sleep well. We always have, I, I've been retired since 2006 and I still have uh, police shootout dreams. Sure. You know, sure. It, it's just part of the stress, but, um, but I knew that, I knew that everything was going to be okay. I just didn't know how. And about maybe a week after this, uh, I was at home and the phone rang and it was the sergeant from the unit and it was odd to get a call at home, uh, for us, it just, it just, unless you were going to go to court or something, but this was evening and the sergeant was calling me at home. And I was like, oh, Bobby, you know, and he said, Hey, Ward, I want to ask you a question. I said, Okay, would you be willing to come into the unit and take Danny's place? Huh. I said, Well, I'd be honored to. It's obviously it's not how I wanted to go, but there it was. And uh, I said, Yeah, I'd be honored to. Of course I would. He said, There's just one catch. You know, Danny's partner that survived the shooting wants to come back to work. Um, it won't just come back to work with anybody. And on the chance that you were going to say yes, I said, hey, what if what if Ward came in and took Danny's place? Would that be all right? And they said, yeah. If I could work with Ward, I'll come back. Hmm. So I went into the this undercover robbery unit, and I started working with the surviving partner, and we fell in love, and we got married. Oh. And we've been married for 33 years, and we have two beautiful sons that are adults now. And um, it's it's the, the outworking of God's grace in my life hmm. that all things work together for good. We just have to trust Him. Yeah, I love it when a story has a surprise happy ending where you can be surprised by joy, and that that makes me happy. And I want to get to the next part of of your life where you moved to the Midwest and you go make it a part of your life to help other cops. But I also want to return briefly to the issue of the alcohol. When you drink yourself to sleep, in 1988, you don't have a cell phone next to you. No. You've got to get up and move to a phone that's on a nightstand or on the wall or wherever. Correct. If you had been drinking yourself to sleep, would you have picked up that call to join that unit? Oh, uh, no guarantees. Yeah. No guarantees at all. I never thought I, about I, that. I worry about, well, see, I, I do. I, I, th- I think about about folks who they don't, they don't they're not fall down falling down drunk and so they think they're fine right but they're drinking every night right. and they're making a gamble that they will not have to get up and do anything that night that's right they think well I'm going to drink myself to sleep and I'll wake up in the morning well what if what if something happens that's right what, what if you must leap into action what if you need to drive somewhere right what if there's an emergency? What if a family member's hurt? What what if the work what if work needs you? Right. And you're incapacitated cuz that's your coping mechanism. That's your that's your tool to get to sleep. Right. You you're taking yourself out assuming that you'll never be needed. And and I think that would hurt a cop's desire to be to be needed, you yeah, know, absolutely. to be the one who can answer the call. And I think at the core of that is to ask the question where is your focus? Huh. So my focus was on me. 
Yeah. And that's the question I would ask any officer today. Where is your focus? Because when, when God spoke to me and asked me if I'd spoken to him about it and to trust him with it, my focus got off of me. Hmm. My focus got onto something bigger. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I think that's the, I think we're talking the same language here. God and duty and, and you know, responsibility and those kinds of higher callings. Right. That, that has to be bigger than than some of the stuff that we're not dealing with well that's and right. we're using alcohol to 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 just kind of cover it up that's right yeah that's absolutely right hmm. okay uh, i was just going to say you know I, i'm not a i'm not a uh, as a chaplain as a police chaplain uh, my feet are on the ground if i ride with somebody in a police car and they swear i don't care right language to me is a tool that's all it is um if you tell me that you uh, drink, I don't have a problem with that. You know, the truth is, uh, I'm a I'm a believing Christian. I can drink as much as I want to. Yeah, yeah. Now, the truth is, I choose not to drink, but I have the freedom to drink if I yes. want to. And so, the only thing I would tell someone is, you know, why are you drinking? If you're drinking as a tool, it's not going to lead anywhere productive. No. Never. No. Never, ever, ever in the history of human existence has alcohol, the, the abuse of alcohol, to excess led to anything good. Yeah. So if you're, you know, well, I'm a social drinker. Well, that, you know, that's fine. That's a, that's a decision you make. And if you can control it, good on you. But just remember that once you start that pattern, it can become the crutch that you depend on it, when, it, when it, things go sideways. It can get out of control pretty quick. Absolutely. Hey, Alcohol is a lot like a credit card. Uh, there are costs that come later and they build up fast. Right. And you are in over your head before you know it with and, either one of those. And the interest payments are high. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Ward, tell me, you retired, you said in? Uh, 2006. 2006. Yep. How on earth do you leave Southern California and end up in the Midwest in Kansas City? <laughs> I was born out here uh at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City. Never, oh, really? Never lived here. My mom had been <laughs> raised here. Uh, so, summer vacations, winter time, we'd come out to visit. And, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some poor kid in California coming out to visit in Kansas City in the winter. Well, yeah. part of my part of my story that you, it's not going to come up. I lived for seven years in the Bahamas on an island. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, actually, coming to the Midwest, where there were things like television, fireflies, and snow in different seasons, you know, that was all. Had some novelty. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so it just perspective <laughs> is so important. Um, yeah. And so my wife was uh, born and raised in East Los Angeles, and uh, we 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 were we knew retirement would come one day, and uh, we we kept researching and looking, and Overland Park, Kansas, kept coming up as a place, as a great place to raise a family. Yes. Uh, Austin, Texas, uh, was coming up as a great place, and so we we. We evaluated both. We came out. We visited. She liked it here. So when it came time to retire, we we're like, let's let's go out to the Kansas City area. That's that's where we want to be. Wonderful. And we love it here. We love the seasons here. We love the people here. Uh, it's uh, the, the boys had what I call a, a Norman Rockwell childhood that where they had good schools and and uh, good experiences growing up. My my oldest son is a police officer in Kansas City, Missouri now. Okay. Okay. And uh, my youngest son lives in Chicago. He's an actor. Uh, they're both great young men, and uh, the move here was good. 
It's a great, great place to raise a family. It is. Uh, we have two good weeks of weather every year, <laughs> one in the spring, one in the fall. Which means right? it's about to end. Because yes, I th- it is. I think we've had about a week. Here, yeah, we're so. recording on a beautiful, beautiful fall day today. <laughs> that's right. And uh, it'll be over soon, I'm sure. That's, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So, so you're a retired cop. You've moved to the Midwest where it's cheaper to live. You can you know finish raising your family and it's great things out here. How did you get involved as a chaplain? Wow. Um, the first thing that happened was I got involved. I became an associate pastor at a church for a few years. And um, uh, my wife uh, developed breast cancer. Mm. So I stepped out of ministry to, to take care of her and to take care of the boys there in school. And so the ministry door kind of closed at that point. And um, when we came out of that season, she, she uh, through treatment, she was healed uh, thank you. Uh, thanks to God's grace, and um, I started to. I did some. I did some work for the Disabled American Veterans for a while in loss prevention, which was more on the police side of things. Sure. Um, we moved down to Arkansas for a few years to uh, take help take care of my wife's mother, and we just knew we needed to be back in KC. So we came back here about three years ago, and I was literally out for a walk about a, a year and a half ago, and God spoke. I was listening to a sermon, and He said become a chaplain. Mm. Now, my wife had told me probably three or four times in over the years since retiring, you should become a chaplain. You should become a chaplain. And every time she told me, I listened to my wife because she, <laughs> she, she's spiritual. She hears from God. And so... Oh, I think that's the more sure way to hear from God. Absolutely. Is through God's people. Oh, absolutely. That, that I don't know if... I, I can never promise a believer that they will ever hear an audible voice from God. Right. But you will hear God's voice in his word and through through his people. That's right. So pay attention. There is there is safety <laughs> and a multitude of counselors. Yes. And it's always good advice to listen to your wife. That's right. And so I would, I would research uh, chaplaincy, and I got within about two classes of getting my bachelor's degree, but I had a, I actually had a stroke uh, and uh, was kind of knocked out for about a year of my life. And it, it, right in the middle of the semester, so I ended up with a, a couple of Fs in there. And, and then I just didn't have the energy to, to go back to school. So I'm not, I'm not the guy. Every time I researched for chaplaincy, it was like, come to our university and get your master's. Oh, or your doctorate. Or yeah. your doctorate. They, like, they want high education. Right? I'm not that guy. That's just not me. Uh, if God's going to use me, he's going to use me. Well, and my, so my wife had told me this, and I looked. Every time she told me, I looked, and there's just no clear pathway. Well, when God said become a chaplain, I was like, okay, I'll go look again. And I came home and sat down. I started researching, and I, and there, I stumbled across this uh, organization called the International Fellowship of Chaplains. Hmm. And they are a licensing, teaching entity that they don't care about your college. They want to know who you are. They do a background check. They do letters of reference. The there's classes you got to pass tests. It's it's the whole thing, you yeah. know, and so I went through the training for that and and became licensed and um, and then it was just a case of uh, sort of starting starting to knock on doors because I knew my chaplaincy would be with the police department because that was my history. Yeah, and uh, Overland Park embraced me and I'm sort of a hybrid because up until this point the chaplains at Overland Park have all been with one exception have all been either a rabbi or a pastor or a minister. Right. And uh, there's a, a a wonderful chaplain that got uh, became a chaplain just ahead of me. She's a licensed therapist, so she and I are sort of the hybrids that, right? Um, right. But not coming directly out of clergy. Yeah, right. But, but we're also the the two right now that have uh, that are taking time to have ride-alongs and spend time in the police stations and getting to know 
the men and women. And so, um, and so we're starting to have be, be more proactive in our chaplaincy. Yes, 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 yes. And uh, we're, we're finding uh, tremendous um, success in the Lord in that. God's, God's doing good things through that. Yeah, you are the very prototype of what I'm looking for in chaplaincy. If chaplaincy is going to have the impact that I want it to have in law enforcement across America, then we need to recruit tens of thousands of former first responders who are spiritually wise, right? who can invest in the lives of young patrol officers. Right. If we can get to them in those first five years of their law enforcement career and develop good patterns and speak wisdom into their life and spend time with them before the crisis hits, right? so that when the crisis hits, they're not having to talk to a stranger. Right. If we can do that and multiply that across every department, we will make a difference in the suicide rate and in the divorce rate and in the, just the general misery that sometimes accompanies a law enforcement career. Uh, always, I think. Yeah. I yes. think it always accompanies a law enforcement. Yeah. You know, that we're, we are tre- police officers are treading in spiritually dark waters, and I think a lot of them aren't aware. Right. They're, they're not it, thinking about it. It is a rare cop who really does have all of the awareness and support that you need to just sail right through. Right. Occasionally I see one. Right. But man, it's because they have an army of people around them supporting them. Right. Right. And most most don't. Most right. are are young single men and women who are apart from their church background if they had one. They you know, they're working shift work. They they're too busy to to go to church. Right. And so they're completely disconnected from all of the support because you you go into church and and you talk about death. And right. and life and 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 morals and and values and all these things that are right. relevant to your job in law enforcement. Right. But but cops don't avail themselves to that, and they don't have the maybe the family and other stuff around them to give them that support, and and they need to be increasing those resources, not yes. decreasing them. Yes. So and yeah. it's hard. It's hard for a police officer to maybe you go to a church and you you go visit a small group and you start sharing in the room and and. The question gets asked, well, what's been stressful for you this week? And, well, my car got a ding in it or my windshield got a chip in it and I got to get that repaired. That was a big stress. And then they come to you and you're like, yeah, I was wrestling with a guy in an alley over a gun. and you know. Right. Or I had to, you know, help scoop up the brains that were yes. spread across the sidewalk. And yeah. so we, yeah. tend to, we tend to really isolate ourselves because of our, because of our work. And, um, and, and even within the first responder world of paramedics and firefighters, police have their own unique subculture, subculture, yeah. because we're dealing with the people side of disaster, mm-hmm. like that people caused people initiated Yes. versus it's a bad wreck, which is horrible, it, but it's not the same as an evil predator who's wreaking carnage right. and you're, you're witnessing it firsthand. So, yeah. Um, yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot that needs to be unpacked, and I need. That's why I I am searching for first responders, probably already retired, who, like I said, have some spiritual wisdom, right, and can invest in the lives of another generation of officers as a chaplain, right. And and I think it is incredibly worthwhile. There's also another uh, agency out there that's called the, the ICPC, the International Conference of Police Chaplains. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I mean, I think the IFOC, the International Fellowship of Chaplains that I went through the training with, I think they do great training 
it's very broad based. So if, if someone is just not sure where they're going to go as a chaplain, but they think they're being called, that's a great right. way to do it. But if you really know that you're going to be a law enforcement chaplain, then the International Conference of Police Chaplains is the place to go because it is nothing but police chaplains. They are uh, a branch of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Mm -hmm. So they're sort of recognized and they have that link and they they have legitimacy to them that many of our departments are already embracing. So uh, that would be something that would be worthwhile people exploring as well. Yeah, it's a very comprehensive training from ICPC. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you, Ward. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jared. I appreciate you having me here. I want to thank Ward for sharing his experiences with me. His story is a story of partners, a partner who was lost and a partner who was gained, and also allowing himself to seek God as a partner and as a participant in his life to give him hope and work things out for good. It means all the world to me that there is a police department with a chaplain like Ward who can speak with experience and wisdom to a new generation of young police officers. If you're a retired first responder and you also feel being called to help these cops, I hope you'll get in contact with me. I hope you'll find some good training and start building relationships with these men and women before they have their next crisis. We need you to spend time with them, to spend time in their world so that they know they have someone who cares. If you like what you heard here, please share this episode with a cop or someone who loves a cop. On the next episode of Hey Chaplain. Uh, There was an old stuff doc at a DA's office, district attorney's office in Bangor. And uh, the ladies that worked the office, the administrative folks, uh, they hated this taxidermy duck. <laughs> and so I always said when I went up there, I was court officer for a time at a smaller department in Bangor. And uh, they were, I was like, if you ever give the duck away, I'd, I'd be interested in having it. And they were like, yeah, you can have it. I'd have people in my cubicle at work doing interviews. And they'd ask why I had a duck. And I'd say, you can't lie to the duck. It was a joke. It was just something that, you know, break the mood of whoever was in there. Right. Long story short is we slipped it into pictures on the Facebook page without saying anything about it. We did that for a time and people kept asking, why do you have a duck on your page? And I wouldn't answer them. And over time, I just determined that we'd call it the duck of justice uh, because it was a DOJ and I knew that would also help the the search engines. You know, DOJ would help search engines. If someone searched DOJ, they'd get the duck of justice in Bangor. So, (laughs) I mean, that was my first attempt at, you know, working the algorithms against Facebook and, uh, or Google. And uh, it took off, and we wrote some humorous posts about it, but the duck obviously doesn't write or talk, or it's a stuffed duck, but now it's became, uh, become an iconic little representation of Bangor, and we have it in a museum in a glass case, and yeah, yeah. we have, you know, people from all over the world come see that every year. The views expressed here are the personal views of the host and our guests and do not necessarily represent the views of any law enforcement agency or its components. Thank you for listening today. And as always, pray for peace in our city.